Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm very delighted today to welcome Rick Rapetti, uh, professor of philosophy and editor of the recently released uh, Rutlish Handbook on the Philosophy of Meditation. Uh, Rick, why don't you say a few words about yourself, who you are, what you do, and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you, Winston. Well, first, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I'm quite interested in what you and all of your colleagues are doing, and I look forward to learning a lot more about it and possibly contributing to your efforts down the road like this is a contribution. Um, well, yeah, you mentioned I'm a professor of philosophy. I work at the City University of New York, um, which has 20-something colleges. I'm at one of the community colleges in Brooklyn. And uh, I've been teaching philosophy since around 1991. Um, I also do a couple of things that are related to that. I mean, I've been teaching yoga for a few decades and meditation outside the college and the community here and there in various different places. Um, I am also a certified philosophical counselor, which is a kind of philosophical version of something like psychotherapy. But uh, we jokingly say it's therapy for the sane, which wrongfully implies that people who go for psychotherapy are not sane. But that's just to point out that, you know, well, people come to perhaps philosophical counselors, not necessarily with psychological problems, but with, you know, existential and philosophical and ethical, you know, dilemmas and things like that or whatever. So, um, you know, I have a, a number of different hats that I that I wear. Um, and did you want me to talk about how I got into this yet or say that's a little... where I was going next? Yeah. So uh, maybe I can just quote actually uh, from your website um, sure. to, to get you rolling here. Um, you uh, give a description of how uh, watching uh, television, uh, like a guided meditation and, and yoga, you had an intense out of body experience and then began to study very intensely. Um, and uh, there's a section here. These intense, frequently powerful mystical experiences challenged my previous models of reality, the flow of time, embodiment, and death, and the nature of knowledge. In order to try both uh, to articulate these relatively ineffable experiences and to better understand them, I wound up majoring in philosophy, uh, wrote my dissertation on free will and reflective consciousness, uh, and proceeded to become full professor. That is, that's quite a route in. Maybe you could expand. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite the summary too. There's there's a big gap in between that first experience that I had and my becoming a philosophy professor. Uh, it was quite a circuitous route. But yeah, it's, I mean, I stumbled by accident upon a television show that was a yoga class. And I, I confess that it was my 15-year-old libido that grabbed my attention. There were two beautiful women in sensuous poses in leotards. That's what caught my attention, their beauty, um, the sensuous beauty. I, I didn't even realize at first that it was a yoga class. And then once I did, I said, oh, well, let me try it. I, I would frequently watch other exercise shows and follow along. And so I tried it. At the end of it, we were put into a state of deep relaxation and guided through this visualization thing with breath control and whatnot. And I had an out-of-body experience, which literally blew my mind out of my body. <laughs> um, I, I say it was like a Gnostic experience because it just felt, what's the term that uh, cognitive scientist John Verveke calls ontonormative. It had a kind of ontonormative quality, like more real than real. 
and it felt like a memory. It just, it, it had that Gnostic, like in, immediately intuitive, internal validation, like a kind of epistemic stamp of something real and important. And, my, and like, so like, you know, the, the ordinary model of physical reality that says none of that stuff exists, you know, once you have an insider's experience, I was, you know, really just thrown aback. So I went and got my hands on, I, I literally went to the local library and looked up yoga and meditation and started finding books. Most of them I didn't understand because there weren't that many back then that were available. But uh, I taught myself how to meditate. <clears throat> and within a matter of a few months, I found three meditation teachers that were working together. One of them was Ramdas. Um, and he was studying with the first woman that I found. Her name was Hilda. And she had another woman named Joya and Ramdas, who were both studying under her. But I didn't meet them right away. They were in private meetings. Hilda was in a public space. But after I was in the group for a while, I wound up in being invited more and more because I became very serious yogi. And I, I was, you know, having all these mystical experiences all the time. One of them I'll mention, um, well, a couple of them. I'll say I had some precognitive dreams that were so multiply complex that I couldn't explain them away as a function of mere probability. Probability said that they shouldn't happen, and, you know, but I know that the standard sci scientific explanation is millions of human beings, thousands of dreams every day, shuffle the cards and you're going to get, you know, four aces or whatever. Same thing with precognition. You have a couple of hits, but you're going to, you forgot about all the misses and whatever. But um, they were so complex and other people had the same precognitive dreams as me. You know, it was just like, and they were happening all the time. I was having out-of-body experiences all the time. I was having all these weird trance states and whatnot. So I was sold. I, be, you know, I just kept diving deeper and deeper and deeper into this. I became a very serious monastic like yogi without joining a monastery because my spiritual community was in New York. And there were so many of these little ashrams. They were people's houses that were functioning as ashrams. People were sharing rooms in them. And there were meditations and yoga classes and whatnot teachings going on all the time. So I just dove into that for a number of years. Um, one of my experiences was of something that at the time I didn't understand at all. But I felt like I was in a kind of expansive mind and everything was intelligible and holographically interconnected and it felt omniscient to me like this level of understanding it was like i was just inside of this realm of ideas that were causally connected with everything else and wherever i my attention went it would unfold in ways that was enlightening but it wasn't thoughts and words it was richer than that in some way and I remember thinking this is, I'm accessing something even greater than all the other things that I've accessed so far. I just dove into this stuff and I didn't know, you know, what was going on. I trusted my teachers. But um, when I was coming out of it and in, in back into my ordinary state, I remember feeling like, I don't know if it was just an intuition of mine, but it felt like almost like a directive 
like you need to study philosophy so that you can understand and translate and interpret this to others. <laughs> and I remember thinking, philosophy, I don't know anything about it. I, I went to the local college, Brooklyn College, and went into the bookstore and was looking at philosophy books and thinking, they don't know anything about this, right? Like, no, I'm not going to do this. I, I went, you know, I was still a high school student at the time. After high school, I, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to study philosophy. All my friends who started going to college would tell me, Ricky, you, that's what my friends call me, Ricky, you really have to go. You have to study philosophy. It's like, ah, that's garbage. They don't know what they're talking about. I felt like I knew more than them, and they, it just was two different worlds. But in eight years after being out of high school, I, I realized that I wasn't going anywhere with my life. I was making a lot of money with blue collar jobs and everything. I just said, I have to go back to college. And I, I thought I would go back for something like computer science because uh, cognitive science, I thought it was the beginnings of cognitive science. I was reading about it a lot in science magazines. But when, when I got to college, um, I had postponed going back to college. I didn't want to do philosophy, even though I felt like I was ordered to do it. Um, let me, something I could do is like cognitive science, you know, maybe my meditative experiences, we could figure it out that way by studying the brain and this and that. And then, but like you needed to do computer science and whatnot. And like I hadn't done math in eight years or so, and that was too hard. I, I fell, fell in love with my first philosophy class. So um, I wound up majoring in philosophy. I, I remember asking the professor, what could you do with this other than teach philosophy? And he said, it's a good pre-law major. And I thought, oh, lawyers make good money. They have prestige. I, my parents will be so proud of me. And I, I planned on doing that. I got a job in a law firm as a proofreader and then a paralegal. And this, I, and when, when, after working in a law firm throughout my undergraduate education, I was like, I do not want to work with lawyers for the rest of my life. They have no ethics at all. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so I wound up going to grad school for philosophy because I had majored in it. And But unfortunately for me, throughout most of my education in philosophy, there was no Asian philosophy being offered at all. Well, maybe it was just CUNY. I mean, I know there were some colleges that did that, but I didn't know about it at the time. Um, it was all, what I was exposed to was all analytic, Anglophone, Western philosophy, not even continental philosophy. That stuff was kind of poo-pooed as kind of quasi-woo-woo, you know, sloppy language, you know, we're on the, we're on the cutting edge of meaning. Uh, so I, I went all the way to get my PhD. When, I, when it was time to write my dissertation, I wanted to write on free will because, uh, you know, even though I, in, in the grad program at the CUNY Graduate Center, I was CUNY through and through, they were completely focused on philosophy of language, that they thought that's the cutting edge. We've got to get our meanings and concepts and all that in order. And then most philosophy problems will just vanish as some kind of, you know, semantic Wittgensteinian thing like a house of cards. It's just language games and whatnot. We're going to clean it all up and figure everything out. And um, But I thought, I. I didn't want to really write on that. I wanted to write on free will because the precognitive things really threw me for a loop in terms of time. Like how could I know a year in advance so many details? I thought there's something about time that I don't know. Maybe there's an, a way that maybe there's a timeless realm, or, you know, and so I wanted to do my dissertation on free will because I thought, how could there be, if it, on January 1, let's just say, in 1975, I have a precognitive dream about January 1 on the next year. 
There's a million free will decisions in between those two dates that are all contingent phenomena that would make it impossible to even infer somehow or another, even if you had a computer that had all the data in it, it just didn't make sense to me. So I was confused about the possibility of free will if precognition was real, and I thought it was real. All right, but unfortunately, almost nobody was writing about that, even in the free will arena, and I just had to like write about the stuff that was being written about in the literature on free will, and that's what I did. But uh, after I got my dissertation and I got hired full-time somewhere, I was fortunate to get hired in a community college where my philosophy program is part of a department of history, philosophy, and political science. And so normally when you get hired full-time as a philosopher, you're hired in a certain area, like you're the Wittgenstein guy, or you're the continental philosopher, or you're the medieval philosopher, or whatever it is, right? But in a, in a community college, they don't care what you, what you focus on. So finally, after I got hired, I started throwing myself back into the kind of philosophy I was interested. That's when I discovered that I had only read, the only philosophy in Asian philosophy that I had read was like, just like the Tao Te Ching, a couple of things like the Dhammapada, Bhagavad Gita, and, and like I didn't, I didn't realize that there was a lot of rich philosophy in there and a lot of scholarship that was on the same level that would be appreciated at the graduate school if they only knew about it, right? And so I was I, in the last, you know, since I got my dissertation, got hired full time, that was around 2005. I've been throwing myself into Buddhism and things like that as a scholar, philosopher, practitioner. So that's the long story. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for thanks for uh, treating us to that. I think it's yeah. I mean, sometimes in, for past guests, it's been entirely on the you know technical level, just talking about their work or their book. But it's I think it's great to bring in in, in the personal angle because I imagine most people listening to this, and I know for me and definitely for you, as we've just heard. This is intimately related to events in our lives, trying to understand what 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 this is, you know, in here, out there, uh, with our with our experiences and in the context of our actual lives. So, so thanks for sharing all of that. Absolutely, I, I think in a way I'm blessed that I'm aware of that and that I'm able to try to integrate the two aspects. You know, my existential predicament, my own personal philosophical living, pragmatic struggles and everything, and my professional work. Most professional philosophers, their professional work might be related to some interest of theirs, but it's not as deeply integrated into their existential questions, their personal life, their, their personal journey and stuff like that. So I'm happy about the fact that after at least after I got my dissertation, I'm able to. I'm blessed working at a community college that gives me freedom to just you know research and publish on and then get tenure and promotion and everything on no matter what my philosophical interests are. So I could I could integrate them. So yeah, wonderful. Um, so going from the personal uh, to the more technical, um, let's let's talk a little about the volume that you uh, recently uh, helped pull together and, and edited. The, the Rutledge uh, philosophy of meditation um, handbook on the handbook Rutledge handbook on the philosophy of meditation sure yeah maybe we could start uh, with what how how did this volume come to be it's really it's really quite impressive it's what eight hundred some pages of uh, assembled uh, articles oh yeah I don't know how many pages it is I I forget the page count 
but it is it's uh, 26 chapters two of the chapters um are co-authored um so there's 28 authors <laughs> plus an introduction by me one of the chapters is by me and the preface and all that is by me and there's a forward by Owen Flanagan, who's a philosopher who, when he was invited to one of those um, mind and life, Dalai Lama meets the neuroscientists et al, annual things, as a philosopher, he got into all this stuff and became very interested in comparative Asian, East-West philosophy and everything. So um, he's a friend of mine. I was very happy that he wrote a forward to it. Um, but yeah, so how did it come together? Well, it's one of the fruits of me. Um, I was just, you know, appreciating the fact that I've been able to integrate my interests over the last, now it's 17 years since I got my dissertation. Um, I've been practicing meditation since I was a kid and I've been teaching it for decades. And um, it's often, but there's very little been written about meditation in the Western philosophical milieu, right? Um, there's some stuff about it loosely in continental philosophy connected with phenomenology, but very little because the even though there's a great similarity between the two, they're quite distinct. Um, and there's certainly, an, you know, as you know, there's thousands of years of what would be called philosophy of meditation in Asian philosophy. But like the, particularly my training as a Western philosopher is in the Anglo um, file analytic tradition. And those folks have completely not seen any value in meditation practices. Um, and yet that's the training that I got, like following what my, I might want to call the divine command, like learn philosophy, right? So that you can, you know, explain this. This is part of that initiative, really, in, in my own personal trajectory. But, but particularly, it's just an attempt to try to create crossover conversations between people who are practitioners and people who are philosophers who don't understand the practitioners. But in the last, you know, I don't know how many years, it's not that much, but here and there, some analytic Western philosophers are privately practitioners. And some of them will write a little bit about it here and there, right? But it's, there's been very little, there's, there's been no real field called the philosophy of meditation in analytic philosophy or in Western philosophy at all. So I've been of the belief that philosophy is very much, you know, a contemplative, reflective, meditative kind of endeavor. And that meditation is all of those things you know, that both of them are fall maybe under a larger umbrella or they're both the same thing um you know they both of those things have been constitutive of my own journey and my identity so uniting them in a formal way in a public way i, I wanted to be you know the person who comes out with the first complete collection on the philosophy of meditation names it you know <laughs> Uh, gets it out into the, the discourse world of Western philosophers. You know, that's basically my motivation. Um, you know, there, but like I said, like Galen Strawson is a well-known 
analytic philosopher who in his 1986 book called Freedom and Belief had just a few pages in one of his chapters, I don't know if you read it, about, about meditation where he says, because he's a practitioner privately, uh, he didn't say that in that book, but um, I know him personally, and so we've talked about it. But in that chapter, for example, he says, um, oh, you know, you hard determinist, that's people who think determinism is true, therefore we don't have free will. You're convinced of that, but you don't live as if you have no free will. So, um, and like his father, by the way, Peter Strawson, an even more famous philosopher, once wrote a paper where he called Freedom and Resentment, where he argued that even if a science headline came out that said determinism proven, there's no free will, it wouldn't alter the way that we live. We would still live as if we have free will, all of our reactive attitudes, resentment and whatnot, you know, they would just live. They, they're independent of the metaphysics, right? So, but, but his son, Galen, wrote that, well, no, because there's this whole tradition in Buddhism where they believe in something like determinism and therefore that the, the locus of agency is not really in the self and they live as if there's as if hard determinism is true so if you really want to integrate your philosophy into your life maybe you should start practicing buddhist meditation right that's all he wrote about it in that chapter uh, he said more about that in the contrib contribution that he made to my previous anthology which was um a, what was it called buddhist perspectives on free will Subtitle was Agentless Agency, also with Rutledge. That was a few years back, 2016. So, you know, like that's an example. And just a few years ago, um, what's his name? Um, Evan Thompson uh, came out with a book called Waking, Dreaming, Being. And the subtitle had the words philosophy and meditation in it, but the whole book wasn't about a philosophy of meditation it just that played a role in his exploration of consciousness and how meditation can can play a role in our attempt to understand it and everything so he was doing what i would call philosophy of meditation in the book but he wasn't calling it that so me putting this book together and giving that title to it and addressing the question whether or not there is or ought to be a philosophy of meditation was one of the main purposes of the book and i suppose that leads to the question that when we talked a little earlier before you put the camera on about the three main hypotheses in the book, is that where maybe you want to go next? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Evan's book. If, if people haven't read it, Waking, Dreaming, Being, absolutely. It's, it's, it's masterful. Uh, yeah, I saw Evan last week uh, out in, um, at the University of British Columbia. We had a, a really great intimate conference on uh, Buddhist ethics there. Um, he, he, he's there, he teaches there now, so he just popped in. Uh, yeah, yeah, Wonder, wonderful work. Um, so yeah, let's let's get on to the, the central hypotheses. Uh, hypothesis one, this is something that you lay out in your introduction, um, you know, kind of try, attempting, I think, in some way to, to justify the enterprise to the, the skeptical observer. Um, you know, it is meditation even a, a proper object of philosophical contemplation? Um, uh, so the first hypothesis is that it can contribute significantly to philosophical understanding, the philosophical contribution hypothesis. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, let me give one example. Um, well, a, a number of the chapters in the book, I think, show that the answer to that question is yes. Um, let me just give one example off the top of my head. Wolfgang Fashing, I forget what 
chapter number that is, um, he wrote primarily about what researchers in this area call the pure consciousness experience. And the pure consciousness experience is something like, well, it's difficult to describe right off the bat, but one differentiation that you could make in various kinds of contemplative or meditative practices, there's some semantic confusion about whether or not those words mean the same thing, contemplative and meditative. I don't really care about that. Um, but I know some people make a big deal out of it, but in a contemplative practice, you a, med a contemplative meditative practice, so it's kind of like one pointedness and things like that, or one kind of practice and more explorations of awareness itself might be considered contemplative. Um, yeah, whatever. You can just slice it and dice it a million different ways. But in one kind of practice, you notice all the different objects of awareness. You, you know, you pay particular attention to them. So you're looking at them, whereas normally you look through, let's just say, your desiring and perceiving and emoting and all of that. You look at the world through your cognitive apparatus. So instead you kind of, and so your cognitive apparatus is technically transparent to you, just like your eyeglasses are. You see the world through them. You're not looking at them while you're seeing through them, right? So like you can take a step back and look at your cognitive equipment, your thoughts, your, your senses, all sorts of stuff, you know, and then it becomes opaque to you, right? So there's a shift in your perspective and by, by kind of beholding it and paying attention to it, you can cultivate certain insights about how it functions. But then there's another step back that you can go, which is withdrawing in a sense, this is somewhat metaphorical, but uh, extracting your attention from even looking, normally we look through them, then we look at them. So maybe another analogy is uh, from Marlo Ponti, the blind person uses a cane to feel the world but they can shift their attention to the cane. They're sensing the world through the cane, or they can sense the cane, or they can sense their hand, or they can sense the intention. They can keep going further back. So in a similar fashion, you can notice the world through your cognitive apparatus. You can notice the cognitive apparatus, or you could notice your noticing or your awareness itself. And after lots of meditative practice, you can wind up in what's called a pure consciousness experience, where it's just awareness or being um, and then you can experience I said earlier something like Gnostic when I was having the out-of-body experience there's a kind of epistemic or ontonormative quality to it being itself or awareness itself which calls into question like certain views of consciousness well, Wolfgang Fashing argues this um, that like there are views in philosophy of mind about consciousness as just qualia, which are uh, sensations of what it's like. Uh, that there's nothing in consciousness itself, it's only the contents of consciousness, right? And that there's some confusion in models of mind about these two things. So the point is, dive right into these modes um, and experience them for yourself and see what it's like from the inside out, rather than just theoretically in terms of premise and conclusions. Um, you know, John Verveke, cognitive scientist, um, I think I mentioned him earlier, I don't remember if I did, yeah, okay. Uh, 
he, he makes a distinction, what he calls four Ps. He was one of the contributors to the book. Um, propositional knowledge, procedural knowledge, participatory knowledge, and perspectival knowledge, right? So analytic philosophers are all about propositional knowledge. Almost all of Western philosophy is analyzing arguments and form, creating theories and, you know, the relationship between theories and data and counterexamples and all that. That's the bulk of what counts as, you know, analytic philosophy anyway, and very much, you know, almost all of Western philosophy. But some of the other modes, like the existentialists and the phenomenologists, you know, people like Heidegger, they're more interested in, you know, procedural knowledge, participatory and perspectival. Uh, procedural is know-how rather than know that, right? I know that two plus two is four, that Columbus, you know, came into the Americas in the 15th century, whatever, right? That's knowing that, knowing how to speak French, ride a bike, how to meditate, how to sing, whatever, how to float on water, right? Um, participatory knowledge, when you, let's just say, participate in tribal dance and chanting and things, Things like that you participate in you experience things that are different and by doing that there's a, there are figure ground shifts in consciousness and when they happen you have perspectival knowledge that you didn't have before right so um, those, those are some reasons to think that's just a few I jumped around I started with fash, fashing but and then went to Verveke that's another chapter uh, those are just a few I can go on for hours about the ways in which Meditative experience can give you, well, well, let's just make the comparison with phenomenology while we're at it. You know, the, the basic idea, this is like phenomenology 101, um, and, it, and I know the word phenomenology is, is a big word associated with your work, so most listeners here don't need to hear what phenomenology 101 has to say, but I'll say it anyway, just for people who might not know, this bracketing or epoche, you know, where you kind of look at what's given um, in experience and Descartes does this a little bit in his second meditation like I see hats and coats and I infer a man right uh, a moving hat and coat down there but I don't see the face right so get rid of the I infer a man I'm seeing red um, some philosophers call these statements of appearance as opposed to statements about objects statements about objects have a metaphysical implication to them like that is a man there's a physical world right as opposed to uh, it seems that I'm seeing red now or these shapes or whatever right so bracketing phenomenological bracketing is something like just taking what's given in experience and paying attention to it and kind of bracketing out all metaphysical assumptions right Processes very much like that happen in meditation, all right? So, whereas many people who do, you know, propositional knowledge about phenomenology don't practice meditation, I would give the Strawsonian advice, practice some meditation so that your theory becomes more embodied. And that's also a move in cognitive science, which, you know, Fodor had that computational model of mind. There's some philosophy of mind where we're like computers, right? And it's all propositional prop processing um, but for e for e cognitive science says no Descartes you know dualism is a mistake we are embedded uh, we're embodied mind is spread throughout our bodies our bodies are embedded in arenas uh, 
we have extended cognition. We're extended into the world like the cane, uh, but through a network of distributed cognition, like culture is a distributed cognition thing. All of our minds are connected, that's extent. And, uh, and we enact, we are enacting beings, right? So our minds change our environments, which change us, and this is reciprocal, you know, feedback loops and all that. And so it's a much more dynamical relationship with reality that you get in 4E cognitive science. Meditative practices facilitate those being lived experiences for practitioners. So if you're interested in really figuring out the nature of mind and of reality and all those other things, those are a whole bunch of reasons to think that the first hypothesis that which is that meditation can contribute to philosophical understanding is a valid consideration. It's at, so meditation can at least contribute something to philosophical uh, inquiry. Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty easy hurdle uh, to cross, and you yeah, know that, that's that's a, that, that's a good sampler platter there. That's the easiest one. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's why I start with that. You know, whet the appetite of the reader. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Second one is what there is, or can be, or ought to be a philosophy of meditation. So that's a, a little more challenging. Um, one of the contributors, Jake Davis, who's a friend of mine, um, in one somewhere in his in his chapter, he's I think it's in a footnote where he says, if he had to accept this phrase, a philosophy of meditation, he would only do so kicking and screaming or something like that. Um, so so there is some even among, and he's a meditator, and you know he was in these, you know, Burmese meditation retreats as a translator and everything. He's, he's deeply involved in this stuff. But the idea that um, there should be a philosophy of meditation is something that many people, even in this, in the philosopher practitioners, are a little uncomfortable about it. In fact, I tried to encourage most of the contributors to explicitly say how their chapter contributed to the philosophy of meditation. And many of them just refused to do it or wiggled around it or barely did it. They just felt because this is I'm breaking ground with this terminology. So there's resistance to the idea. Um, this idea of a philosophy of meditation, you know, this. So maybe the objections ought to come up first, like, OK, you know, any activity that could be a philosophy of it, like philosophy of, the, you know, the delicatessen or something like that, you know, uh, just like there can be um, an ode to anything, you know, like a poem about anything, you know, it's just because you can devote some philosophical attention to something doesn't mean that it ought to merit like a whole discipline like that, like philosophy of biology or philosophy of religion, right? Um, but really philosophy of religion, if you, if you get philosophy of religion or philosophy of math or philosophy of any one of these other areas of human inquiry, I think you have to accept that there needs to be a philosophy of meditation, particularly with all the neuroscientific, you know, research going on about it lately. Um, so there is one in the history of Asian philosophy. There have been, you know, debates between Buddhists and Hindus and whatnot and Taoists and Confucianists and, you know, there's been debates throughout the history of Asian philosophy about meditation that 
it might not be called the philosophy of meditation, but the philosophy of meditation is a big part of Asian, the Asian philosophical conversation throughout the centuries. Um, so there is one there. There are elements of it in Western philosophy. You know, the Stoics advocated various kinds of meditation. There's a variety of meditative practices that could, that, or contemplative practices that belong in, in the um, umbrella category of meditative or contemplative. The Stoics not, weren't the only ones who had them, but one of the chapters in the book was about Stoicism by Massimo Pigliucci. Um, certainly Neoplatonists had contemplative practices that are very meditative. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things in, in West, in, 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 certainly in theology, right? And the last two chapters in the book were about Christian forms of meditation and Judaic ones. Um, I, I couldn't c cover all the different, all the religions in the West have some meditative components in them, but I couldn't cover all of those. Um, and I didn't think I needed to do that for the purposes of the book. I just wanted to put some of them in there. And I also had a limitation of, you know, how many words were allowed in the book and how many chapters. Uh, so, um, so that's the question. So, and then ought there to be one? Well, you know, my, I, I pretty much say about all of these things, I give my opinion and then, but I ask the reader to decide, you know, you, you tell me after you read the book. Huh? <laughs> well, I, I can throw my, my opinion in the ring. You know, there, there already is, as you, as you stated, a rich philosophy of meditation <laughs> um, existing in much of the world that has contributed to human culture for thousands of years. And even, you know, in, they, they might not call it as such, but uh, you know, we, we, within, uh, you know, West, Western religion, there's, you know, that that's contributed immensely the neoplatonist as you mentioned it, it already exists it just isn't uh in in our in the current philosophical milieu it's not that present but you know it's it's a little strange certainly. historically odd yeah it's certainly in the platonic tradition and in the you know the neoplatonic christian tradition and in aristotle not aristotle in uh, aquinas Maimonides, all these other figures, uh, and then Muslim philosophy, you know, all those guys like Al-Ghazali and whatnot, the Sufis and, you know, you name it, it's all over the place. It's just that the folks that gave me my PhD, they need to be informed about it. That might, you might say that that was one of the main reasons why I wrote the book, to tell my friends at the Graduate Center, who, when I was writing my dissertation on um, metacognition and autonomy, how metacognitive practices help you to increase your agency. Um, that was really just my, like Buddhism in drag, but I tried to make it not in drag, but my advisors encouraged me to take anything explicitly about Asian philosophy and put it in the footnotes. <laughs> so this is the book coming out of the footnotes into the main text <laughs> thank goodness for that thank goodness for that yeah oh my um all right number three meditation is can be or ought to be considered a form of philosophical activity doing or inquiry the meditation yeah. is philosophy so that's an, an even stronger and more interesting claim that's the strongest one and therefore the hardest one to I suppose, justify. Um, the clue for me when I was trying to integrate these things, I, I can't take credit for the, the answer that I'm going to give. I already kind of hinted at it earlier, but I was at a meditation retreat 
at uh, IMS, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, I don't know, around 2000, in early 2000s. And uh, that's mostly Theravada and inspired. Uh, well, back then it was, now they're more uh, eclectic and open. But the teacher was um, one of Goenka's follow disciples, uh, very old woman. She was in her 80s back then. I don't know if she's even still alive. Dama Dana, her English name is uh, Ruth Dennison. She's got a place out in uh, the Joshua Tree area. I don't know if it's still there, but in any event, she was doing a little Dharma talk. You know, it was a silent retreat, but then there's the Dharma talk and uh, a couple of times that you get to speak to the teacher, but it wasn't just me and her. She was just giving an introduction about mindfulness or something. And she said very casually um, in passing, you know, mindfulness is just extraordinary attention to ordinary experience. And a kind of light bulb went off in my head because I had been trying to figure out some kind of phrase. What's the concept that links philosophy and meditation? That was the beginning for me uh, that I felt like, aha, that's that's a start. Because meditation is that, certainly. I was already talking about how instead of looking through your experience, you look at your experience, right? And so that's a heightened attention to the way you're experiencing and you're an experiencer and all that kind of stuff. And philosophy in theory is the same thing. We're looking at all the basic conceptual components of experience like causation, mind, body, all of that stuff. We're just using slightly different analytic tools, but the intention and the purpose of it is the same same, at least in both of those cases. So um, that alone, for me, answers the question in the affirmative. Meditation is more of an experiential practice that enables you to become more intimately, subjectively familiar with your own being, which is metaphysics, <laughs> your own consciousness, which is philosophy of mind, all of the things that are kind of approached through the first P, propositional knowledge in analytic philosophy, are approached in some of the other P's in continental philosophy, but all of the P's are involved in the meditative path in the Asian tradition. So clearly, meditation is a form of philosophy. Why might some, like, who, who needs to hear that? Those friends of mine at the grad center, right, who are stuck in the propositional knowledge module, right? They need to see the bridge in order for them to be able to appreciate and understand it. Sometimes, you know, this is as a teacher, you know, you, when you want to get your students to understand something, you have to be able to find the hooks of their own knowledge that you could hook your new information on so they can recognize that it makes sense, right? So that's what I'm kind of trying to do here. Um, show how it counts for you analytic philosophers in a way that you recognize as philosophy, right? But then it also, if you're open to it, it expands your understanding of what philosophy is. Um, maybe it would be useful to talk about some of the criticisms of that view. 
Definitely. Uh, I'd also like to bring in a, a quote. I was reading over your your, your introduction um, in preparation for this, and I, I just really liked going over this distinction between propositional and other forms of knowledge, participatory, uh, and so on. Uh, you write, what I would propose, uh, by contrast, is the idea that the deepest meditative experiences, namely those of non-duality, transcendence, etc., are not propositional at all. They are trans-propositional. They involve a sort of participatory a perspectival transcendence. So here you're drawing on some of Verbeke's language, I'm guessing. Um, right. Perspectival transcendent gnosis that virtually all the world's sapiential, contemplative, and otherwise mystical traditions agree is ineffable, yet incredibly meaningful, figure ground reversing, transformative, liberational, enlightening, and wisdom generating. I mean, that all sounds like the subjects of, of classical uh, philosophical concerns to me. Uh, you know, transformation, uh, wisdom, um, knowledge of of being of you know, the structure of subjectivity uh etc you can go on but but maybe you can thank do, do your best you. to uh that's knock that down. yeah thanks for quoting me because that's a really good quote i forgot about that <laughs> that's a very good answer uh to the que the same question of why is the third hypothesis true uh, that meditation is a form of philosophy yeah well look um the word philosophy, philia sophia, love and wisdom. And when we hear love, we think of romantic love. But, you know, when you really care about something, you have effect pro attitude toward it, effective, affectionate, it's caring, loving, appreciative. You want to um, support it, grow it, you know, cultivate it. And so and then the other thing is wisdom, right? Wisdom is not propositional you know it can manifest and does manifest in proverbial phrases and things like that that come in propositional form of course almost all verbal communication is propositional but it's not not all of it is because there are four parts of grammar right Interrog interrogatory you know exclamatory and, and and so on but yeah wisdom is Wisdom is something radically different from what most analytic philosophers play around with. They play around with arguments. And, you know, they're trying to capture knowledge about the various subject matters that they explore to invalidate certain theories and claims and validate others. But even if you collect all of those and kind of know them all, that doesn't necessarily guarantee wisdom. Wisdom is different. Wisdom is more something like the ability, it's a practical ability, it's a skill. Like, um, it's hard to put it into propositional terms, but wisdom is something like, I, I can put it in some propositions that most people can easily identify. It's the highest virtue in Socratic understanding, because each virtue, which is an excellence of character, right, is a, a kind of character attribute in a certain domain of enacting, right, Inter integrating and acting with the world, perceiving reality and responding appropriately. So in terms of courage, it's the right amount, Aristotle would say. Well, Aristotle, Buddha, and Confucius all seem to agree that it's something in the midpoint or proper calibration, like tuning of a, a guitar string, right? It's got to be just right. Um, so 
not too much, not too little, otherwise it's foolhardy or cowardly. Same thing with generosity, truthfulness, every one of these excellences of human capacity, right, has an element of wisdom in it because wisdom is that element of that virtue that tells you what's the right amount. And that's not algorithmic. It's not formulaic. It's something that's built up through practice like any other virtue, right? So the love of wisdom, if you genuinely love wisdom, you need to be cultivating all of those virtues in yourself, right? It's not just some academic exercise, right? Like a bunch of puzzles that you get good at. I mean, that, that there's a place for that in philosophy, solving paradoxes and whatnot, like math problems. Right. But analytic philosophy has gotten divorced from philosophy as a way of life, as a way of cultivating and literally loving wisdom. If you really love wisdom, you're going to do those practices that will inculcate it in you. So meditation practices and contemplation practices, those are some of the kinds of practices that will cultivate your wisdom capacities. It's as simple as that. So. There's more love of wisdom, in my opinion, in that approach than there is in the paradox solving approach. You know, uh, I think that's a decent argument on why meditation is a form of it's one of the highest forms. Well, it's certainly in Asian philosophy, in some traditions, it's the sine qua non. You can have all those intellectual insights, but they don't make the shift like Galen Strawson said about the hard determinist. You need to have those moments of gnosis where the real figure ground transformations happen and then your gestalt has changed. So you don't get that by playing around with propositions. I mean, you can in a Zen Cohen, but that's a different approach to propositions. Or you could, if you go through Spinoza's ethics, let's just say, and meditate on every sentence, Right. That's kind of like a Lectio Divina, though. That's like a meditative practice. So, you know, and prior to the modern era, I think reading was more like that. Slow, contemplative, thoughtful, more like Lectio Divina than this kind of, you know. Stuff. Scanning line by line as you would, uh, yeah. uh, a, I don't know, Twitter or uh, a listicle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I think I, I think I, so, but I didn't give the objections. Should I go into a couple of the objections? Please go into the objections. But first I, I'd like to, you know, we, you, you talked a little about your personal experience for, for me. It, I mean, I was very interested in philosophy as an adolescent, but there was actually an experience catalyzed by a text um, ah. that, that then uh, induced me to pursue the love of wisdom at, you know, through, you know, academic engagement, but more, more, uh, fulsomely in the contemplative uh, endeavor. Um, and it was yeah. uh, engaging with uh, Nagarjuna. Um, oh. oh, well, there you go. Well, and I remember kind of grappling with that text line by line. Uh, just, and it, you know, with my later meditative training, I can recognize retrospectively the kind of uh, honed attention and metacognition that was necessary for me at that point to engage with that text and really grapple with it that then kind of heightened and heightened and heightened and reached a point where 
something shattered and my experience was transformed. That is a Cohen-like thing, uh, only it's very progressive with Nagarjuna like Spinoza. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I remember as a teenager, prior to my finding that yoga show on television, my mom used to get Reader's Digest, which was a little magazine that would come in the mail with the kind of summaries of things, kind of like the New York Review of Books or something like that, but for like the average person, not the scholar. Um, but there was always a page in there called quotable quotes. And there would be like proverbial statements from wise folks. And I used to, oh, that was the almost the only thing I would read in that thing. I would go and look at that and I get whatever wisdom I could out of it. Um, and I would treat them the way you treated Nagarjuna or, you know, how somebody might read Spinoza's ethics. Um, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, once a month, I think they would come and I would, the first thing I would do is go and look at those and I would just sit with them for quite a while and try to understand this, this, this is supposed to be wise. How is it wise? What does it mean? You know, I would dwell on it. And I developed a love of wisdom, I think, uh, without realizing it in that silly practice. Um, all right. So objections. The, objections, the objections. So, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, what would what, <laughs> what would uh, someone who, who wasn't uh, of our disposition have to say to all of this? Well, two of them are really famous, and I've written about them a few times. But um, chapter one in the collection was written by a colleague of mine named Richard Legum, who's an analytic philosopher. Now, I actually have a weekly meditation on my campus. Um, since pandemic, though, it's been on Zoom. And um, since... Uh, 2006, roughly, every week. He comes to the meditations, but he's a martial artist and he claims he only does it so that he'll be like a better samurai or something, right? The one-pointedness thing. Um, but I know he's a critic of anything deeper, uh, anything that's not like he thinks even continental philosophy is like woo-woo, silly, sloppy, vague, all this kind of stuff. And I'm always trying to argue with him like, you're missing out on something, you know, open your mind. In any event, he wrote the first chapter. I, I put his chapter first because it's critical. Um, I don't know if you read it yet, but yeah. So the two major objections are from Gilbert Ryle, which was back in 1949, which is kind of behavioristic, you know, perspective, critical view of the mind, all there is is behavior, what's ostensible, visible, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of in the background of this objection. Gilbert Ryle, so he objects to the very concept of introspection as being multiply problematic. I'll, I'll say more about it in a moment, but I just want to mention the other guy is Robert Nozick. I think it was 1981, he wrote one of his magnum opus treatises um, philosophical explanations, which kind of top touches on almost every problem in philosophy. Um, it's a pretty interesting book. It's got his truth tracking theory of knowledge in there and all sorts of interesting things. But, and he, he criticizes the idea that there's any metaphysical or epistemological content in meditative states. So let me start with Ryle. So Ryle, I, Richard Legum, the, the author of the first chapter, he touches on a few of um, Ryle's objections to introspection, but I'll only I'll mention just one because we I don't want to do everything here. 
which is the one that I've written about before. So that's easier for me to explain that one. He says that introspection, inspecting your own mental states, can never really happen genuinely because in order to be an impartial, neutral, passive observer to your own mental states, Well, he's got a number of objections to that idea, but the one is that you can't do that without intervening upon them because he uses a very strong example. If you were in a state of rage and you were capable of introspecting, that would immediately diminish it. So there's no such thing as a non-interventionist observation of one's own mental states. Maybe there are some mental states that you could observe without interfering with them, but automatically the whole process seems to be undermined. That's one objection. And the simple answer to that is, thank God for that. The whole idea of the meditative path is to be able to alter your mental states. <laughs> so, I mean... That's the cure, right? The whole that's not a problem. That's not a bug. That's a feature. <laughs> yeah, that is not a bug. It's a feature. It's, in fact, it's the primary feature. You can literally alter your own consciousness. So, so much for that. But there are other problems that are more interesting to analytic philosophers. And Richard Legum, I'll give him credit for this. He he gives he does a steel man of Ryle. And then he's really fair-minded in his, you know, this, he's doing a lot of really good analytic philosophy to critique these ideas, pro and con. And he has a little skepticism at the end, but he's very fair and respectful. And it's an excellent piece of analytic philosophy about meditation. So here's an analytic example of the philosophy of meditation, right in the very first chapter. He kind of laying down the gauntlet for all the other chapters, like, Everything that you guys are doing is suspicious, but, you know, it's interesting and maybe, you know, um, you have to answer my objections and nobody really directly answers his, but everybody does indirectly answer his because very few of the contributors had a chance to read each other's chapters when they composed them. So I didn't want that kind of crop, but I put a lot of footnotes in all of their chapters saying you should read this other chapter about this point or that point. But um, so, yeah, maybe there'll be a later volume or a bunch of articles that come out where people start answering each other's stuff. I hope that there might be a volume two or some other work. Um, there might be a, a couple of special issues in various journals coming out devoted to this book and this topic. So some more stuff is going to come out. But in any event, Nozix is the one I like um, and you might remember it. It's the soundless stereo analogy. It goes like this. What if meditation is nothing other than the damping down of your cognitive apparatus? Kind of like, imagine a stereo system. And back when he wrote that, it was a phonograph with a turntable and a stylus needle on the vinyl. Um, he says, the speakers are on, the turntable is spinning, there's a record on there, but the needle is not on the record. So there's like a hum in the speakers, there's energy in the system, but it's not producing any music. 
maybe meditation, that's all that it is. He said, if you, and let's, I'm going to add to this, bracket out the way the phenomenologists do. If you bracket out, he doesn't say bracket out, but he says, if you just eliminate or remove all those metaphysical assumptions that are the baggage in Hinduism and Buddhism about super mundane realities that you're accessing in some kind of mystical way, he said, you know, and I add this humorous thing. He says, you know, maybe it's just the hum of the equipment, I would say, rather than the ohm, you know, the vibrations of this, the sacred vibration of the universe or the sound of enlightenment or something like that. So it's just ho-hum, it's not ohm, you know, and that's his objection. That's a pretty, you know, scary objection for many people um, who, who might not have ever had the kind of really rich Gnostic experience, which would function as a kind of psychological inoculation against that objection. So if you haven't had, if you haven't reached the level of Gnostic insight into the reality of that, that ontonormativity, uh, you know, the reality of the, the pure consciousness experience or any of these other phenomenal states, um, then that, that, that objection will seriously give you pause. And uh, even though I've had all those experiences, that objection has made me wonder, have I biased myself with all the things that I've learned from all these other traditions? You know, then, so I have to re-examine re my, my memory about all my experiences countless times. Like analytic philosophy has taught me to be extremely skeptical and to try to review my history to make sure I am not making mistakes. <laughs> and Nozick's soundless stereo thought experiment has, has really encouraged me to do that on numerous occasions. So, so those are two major objections. Um, there are a lot more. And that's what philosophers do. They level objections, you know. <laughs> Very good at it. Been trained to it. And good that, good that they are because, you know, uh, it, it can't be that, you know, every mystic who uh, comes out with some propositional content from his non-propositional state, it can't be that all of them are right. So, you know, there, there needs to be some pruning. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And, um, you know, this is, I, I find myself lately quoting John Verveke a lot. John says that there's something genuine going on in those, he calls it anagage, which is a platonic idea about kind of upward transformation into, this is a very Neoplatonist, uh, into, a, into the realm of intelligibility and all that, all those kind of Neoplatonic ways of talking about it. But he says, look, um, you know, like the perennial philosophy is the claim that we are all experiencing the exact same one reality and it's coming out of different faucets in different ways. And so the way that he says it, like, well, there might, be, you know, there might be some truth to that idea, but all those different claims that are coming out of those different faucets and some people are on psychedelics, some people are kind of mad mystics and, and then the, everybody's got a kind of ideological commitments to the tradition that they came out of. And you've got people on ayahuasca talking about little aliens and whatnot. And like, so like, it's not about the propositions that come out of it. That's the wrong place to look. And we shouldn't take those things the way 
historically we've taken them within a certain tradition. The prophet said X, Y, and Z, and that became the dogma, <laughs> right? That's a mistake. There's something going on and we need to figure it out. Uh, but the way to figure it out is not by comparing the propositions that mad mystics generate when they come out of those spaces, states, yeah. All right, well, I, I think your your volume here and your your uh, past and future work is is you know going some ways uh, with your colleagues to to figuring that out and you know the the EPRC of which I'm I'm a member that's that's kind of the whole mission is making sense of what what in psychedelic mystical you know contemplative experiences what what's what's going on there and what uh, relation does that bear in a scientifically informed and you know mostly naturalistic paradigm. Yeah, and I'm happy. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned psychedelic uh, because I'm happy that Chris Leatherby had a chapter in the book. And right around the same time that that chapter got published in my book, his book uh, from Oxford came out, The Philosophy of Psychedelics, which the same kinds of questions can be raised. A philosophy of psychedelics, like a philosophy of meditation, it's the exact same thing. Only the challenge facing him is greater than the challenge facing me because it's so much more, it's so much easier to just say, those are the, the stuff that comes out of people who've taken psychedelics is people who've taken psychedelics. Like, you know, they're hallucinating, you know, oh, there's, there's nothing going on there. So like the Nozick's criticism of that would be even worse, right? It was like you took the stereo and you put it under water and, you know, <laughs> who knows what he would say about that. Um, so he's doing really great work. And I'm glad that there was a chapter in, in my collection that shows the connection between the two, because they're both alternative ways of exploring consciousness and reality. Um, and often the only way to figure something out is to take it apart and rearrange it and stretch it and see if you can bounce it or break it and, you know, whatever, or put it underwater and, you know, whatever it is. Um, so much of, of, of philosophical exploration is just trying to turn things inside out and see them from a thousand different angles and why not? Um, I confess to, as a teenager, experimenting with psychedelics, not for fun, but for these reasons. Um, and they played a role uh, in, in altering my consciousness. I'm not exactly sure, but instinctively, I know that they did. They, um, they enabled me to be more open to alternative possible explanations and ways of perceiving and ways of knowing. So, but there's a kind of catch 22 about that. Like, if you know that they can do that, and you take them for that reason, you don't need to take them. Right? You can you can approach those alternatives through meditation and other things, right? But there's nothing wrong with taking them, although they they can be more dangerous than meditate. And then you know, there are some dangers to meditation if somebody's like a borderline personality or they're one step away from tripping into their post-traumatic stresses and things like that, then meditation might not be the best thing for them. But, but this is true of almost anything, right? Everything comes with a possible risk. So, and that's the role of wisdom, right? Be careful, be mindful, uh, you know. Yeah. But if you 
weren't if the, if it weren't for psychonauts like astronauts, right, who are willing to take those risks, you know, we wouldn't have learned an awful lot of the things that we have. Thank thank goodness for them and for the pioneering uh, explorers of consciousness through whatever means. You know, harm reduction is it has a role to play in uh, in all of this. It, it uh, like you're saying, wisdom needs to have that mediating function. Exactly. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're about at time and I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Um, maybe you could just say, uh, if people uh, have been intrigued and have enjoyed this interview and they want to find out more about you and your work, um, where can they go? They can go to rickrepetti.com. That's uh, my website. It's my name, one word, no period in between rickrepetti.com. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff there. Most of the things that I'm doing and that I'm up to are there. My CV is there. That tells you what my latest things are. A lot of them uh, are linked in there. Um, I've been on a lot of podcasts um, in the last almost about a year or so now. Uh, in the last few years, I'm, I'm, I'm very busy. I'm, I'm always doing something. So, But I try to, every few months, I'll say, I've got 25 things I have to add to my CV. So um, you can look there periodically and there'll be more stuff. And I, I every now and then I'll change my website around to make it a little more user-friendly because it gets too 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 like cluttered with stuff because I'm always doing things. So I have to, every now and then I have to kind of reorganize it. So I recently cleaned it up a little bit. So And then there's also my YouTube channel, Rick Rapetti. That's it. Um, I have a bunch of a bunch of my own lectures to my students um uh, there's a link on my website too i've been since i started i mentioned i doing the medita the weekly meditations on zoom once the pandemic began i have links to all of them on uh, um on my website so they're like 20 minutes long that's all they're easy but i have a couple of yoga videos there because i've been teaching yoga for decades as well and um I mentioned that I do philosophical counseling. Um, you can find me there and a link to me if you want to kind of hire me at appa.edu, which is the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. Um, they have a whole, not just me, but they have a, a bunch of us who've all been certified by that organization to do philosophical counseling. There's a kind of profiles where you can just kind of chat with a philosopher Right. And you just go on there and you can you know, look at people's bios and say, oh, I'd love to work with that person, whatever. Um, yeah. So and they can bring their pressing philosophical, uh, existential and meditative queries in that that direction or, or any direction. Yeah, I get a lot of people who have questions about their spirituality, their practice, their faith, or they just left some kind of cult or whatever. Um, but also people people will come to philosophical counseling just out of curiosity, like they love philosophy. They never really got an education in it and they want to talk to somebody about some book that they just read or whatever. There's just a, a whole bunch of different reasons. It's a lot of fun. I love that work. Um, what's, what's better about it than teaching philosophy is that every single client who contacts you wants to talk philosophy. That's not the case in a classroom. Some of them just need the class. They need the credits or whatever, or, you know. So this, this is a uh, very meaningful work. Wonderful. Thanks so much again for coming on, uh, for the work you do. And uh, I hope people will look you up and I'll, I'll put a link down to uh, the resources uh, you listed uh, below the 
video here as well. Awesome. So thanks so much. Any final great. words? Oh, great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, love to come back someday if I have something new to, to talk about. Okay. Take care, everybody. Bye. All right. Ciao.